Hello everyone and welcome to Always Choose Orange. This week's episode is called 100 Frogs. A few weeks ago I was sitting at the table eating breakfast in the morning when my son burst into the room all excited and he goes, Dad, want to hear a poem? And I said, yeah, yeah, for sure. So he goes, an old pond, a frog jumps in, the sound of water. And I go, that's, that's Basho. And he's like, yeah, how did you know that? And I was like, how did you know that? And apparently he had read a Magic Treehouse book where they traveled back in time and they met Basho and that poem must have been in it. So we had a good laugh and uh, it kind of got me back into thinking about haiku. I've actually read Basho's work, um, Narrow Road to the Deep North. And uh, that was probably back in 2018, 2019. Really cool book, travelogue, poetry. But uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about about him today and specifically that poem that my son came in and was, was talking about. So Matsuo Basho was a 17th century poet uh, who lived in Japan and he was best known for his haiku and, you know, I think most people are familiar, but a haiku is a short poem and it captures moments in nature typically. And Basho, he wrote a lot about the natural world and he traveled all around Japan. He wrote memoir as well as different types of poems, including haiku. And in 1686, he wrote arguably the most well-known haiku of all time. So in the original Japanese, it's Furuikiya, Kuazu, Tobikomu, Mizu no Oto, which in English translates pretty literally to an old pond, a frog jumps in, the sound of water. And it's a fascinating poem. It's so simple and it's easy to brush off as too simple. It kind of reminds me of the, the way I felt the first time I heard The Red Wheelbarrow by William Carlos Williams, which is one of those poems that's just like, at least in college, I just scoffed at and was like, this is ridiculous. This is not a poem. Anyone could write this. Um, and I, I used to feel that way about a lot of haiku as well. And I think, I mean, fair, right? <laughs> fair. But also slowing down and becoming more interested in slowing down, like sitting with an image and realizing that really short, concise things can have a lot of depth to them. And, you know, as much as it can be taken too far when done in its extreme, it is fun to sit down and analyze images, sentences, poems, and see how much you can get out of it, you know, how far you can plumb the depths of them um, is something that's really powerful. So after my son recited that poem to me and reminded me of it, my brother actually read a few books on haiku lately and was texting me about those. And that was kind of serendipitous and made me go back and look at some of Basho's work. And I came across a book by Hiroaki Seto called On Haiku. And I read about 25 pages of it. Really good. It was just, I was not in the mood to delve into that. But in, the, in those 25 pages, he mentioned another book that he'd written called 100 Frogs. And that book, he collected 
over a hundred translations of this single haiku by Basho. And so I immediately put down on haiku and decided not to finish it and found uh, a way to check out 100 Frogs uh, online. So I read the ebook and wow, <laughs> reading over a hundred versions of that frog pond poem was awesome. And I thought it would make a fun podcast because there's so much to unpack there, right? Um, there's so many, I got so much out of asking the questions of what makes all these translations so different and how did these translators approach the poem. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at 100 frogs and I'm not going to read every single translation or remark on every single translation. But if you're curious about it, yeah, the book's called 100 Frogs by Hiroaki Sato. And I'll link to it in the podcast description. But the first thing I noticed was the most surface level change in translation was whether or not the translator chose to structure the poem in three lines, two lines, or one line. Now, in a few of the translations, the translator was doing another kind of poem, like another poetic form, and so they did even more lines than that, but over, you know, gosh, 80-90% of the translations were either three lines, two lines, or one line, with the most common being three lines, and then I'd say one line was probably the second most common, and then two lines was in there, here, there, and then more lines as, you know, the exploration continued, but so here's what's interesting. So in English, which is where I first learned of haiku, that's the only language that I speak fluently. Haiku, you know, like a haiku is most often seen in three lines. Usually it's 17 total syllables and the lines are distributed like five syllables in the first line, seven syllables in the second line, and five syllables in the third line. But in Japanese, they weren't written in three lines. They did have the 575 structure, but it was split into phrases instead of lines, and it was based on units of sound that were slightly different than syllables. In some cases, they were syllables, but the distinction is a little bit different. It was a little bit over my head, to be honest, so if you're really curious about it, um, the unit of sound, I don't know how to pronounce it because it's a Japanese word, and um, in English, it would be pronounced on because it's O-N, but I would imagine it's pronounced different in Japanese, so you could probably pop up Wikipedia and read about it and, and learn more about what that unit of sound is and how that functions in Japanese poetry. I didn't want to go that far down the rabbit hole right now, but that was interesting. On, on the surface, um, a lot of the translations were very, very close to that literal translation, the an old pond, a frog jumps in, the sound of water, some variation of that. And yeah, that first choice the translator made was how many lines is this gonna be? Um, one of the second choices which I found really interesting was the syntax, so the order of the sentence. In the original poem, the way that the, um, the Japanese was structured, it went pond first, then the frog, and then the sound which kind of causes you to meditate on the sound as an after effect of the frog jumping into the pond. So it kind of progressed that way. First you have the pond, then you have the frog, and then you have the sound, and the sound is what lingers on after 
the frog has disappeared from view. But what's interesting is even though that was the most common way the translators approached it, some of them approached it with the pond first and then the sound happening and then the frog. And then even rarer still, some started with the frog, then the sound and ended with the pond. And each of those choices made a huge difference in how the poem lands and what it feels like to hear it or read it. So one of the translations uh, by W.G. Aston was an ancient pond with the sound from the water of the frog as it plunges in. So that's super interesting. It ends with the image of the frog plunging into the pond rather than the sound emanating. As I visualize that version of the poem, I see an ancient pond with a sound from the water. So I hear the splash and then I see the frog kind of in my head drifting down beneath the water. Which brings me also to my next point, which is translators also were, and this is the most obvious way of looking at translation, I think, is the word choice, right? So taking those initial, in this case, Japanese words and looking at what emotion is this going for? What is it trying to depict? What are these words and how can we best represent them in this other language, which in this case is English? So it was interesting to look at how people represented um, pond. It was ancient pond a lot, old pond, uh, old time pond in one case. One of them or a few of them said lake. Others, one, one even said lonely pond. So there was a lot going on with these word choices and each of those words have, you know, emotional connotations for us. You know, some that will vary on our personality where, you know, one of us might have one association while someone else might have another association. Some of them are more universal, right? We can keep get going on with like the nuances of language. But uh, one of the translations by Clara A. Walsh was an old time pond from off whose shadows, shadow depth is heard the splash where some lithe frog leaps in. And that was structured in two lines. Uh, she chose the word or the phrase old time pond and then kind of made some assumptions and added in some additional meaning. So she said, an old time pond from off whose shadow depth is heard the splash where some lithe frog leaps in. William J. Porter translated pond as calm old lake and his version of the poem was, into the calm old lake a frog with flying leap goes plop the peaceful hush to break. And that's a fascinating one too. So calm old lake, um, they, he added calm in there. And what I kind of get from that is, okay, into the calm old lake, that first line establishes this lake. So it's old and it's calm. And calm infers, for me it infers peace, maybe not for everybody, but for me that kind of infers peace. And then it says, a frog with flying leap goes plop. So that onomatopoeia, that plop, that's kind of a forceful um, image, that, that plop, that sound. Then the poem ends with the peaceful hush to break. So that, that translator sees that poem as this frog is disturbing the calm of this lake. Which is interesting because in some of the other translations, it doesn't land like that. It doesn't feel like this frog is, you know, destroying peace necessarily. 
it, it feels like it's just kind of one with the nature. So that was that's a fa that's a fascinating one to look at. Curtis Hidden Page translated the poem as a lonely pond in age-old stillness sleeps apart, unstirred by sound or motion, till suddenly into it a lithe frog leaps. So I guess I should probably define the word lithe. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. It's a word that I don't hear much anymore. I think it was a lot popular, more popular like 100 years ago, but it means thin, supple, or graceful. And this translation is interesting. It brings a lot of life to it. The, the pond is described as lonely. So the first line is, a lonely pond in age-old stillness sleeps. So the pond is described as lonely and as sleeping. And then in the second line, apart, unstirred by sound or motion. So apart, it's set away. That kind of goes with the lonely. And then it's unstirred by sound or motion. So it's unaffected by the things around it. Till suddenly, into it, a lithe frog leaps. And yeah, this one's interesting because rather than William J. Porter's version that we just looked at, where the frog is disturbing the peace of this calm old lake, in this version, the frog is depicted as bringing life to a lonely pond. And those are two wildly different meanings. Those are two wildly different emotional experiences and all done with the same original source material, which I find very, very fascinating. Um, the next one I want to look at is by Hida Saburo Saito, and it goes, Old Garden Lake, the frog, thy depth doth seek, and sleeping echoes wake. That one's interesting because it rhymes the first and the third line. It got the Old Garden Lake, and then the last line being, and sleeping echoes wake. Talking about the frog seeking the depth um, and waking sleeping echoes. So I kind of get from that one that the frog is finding meaning from this lake. Another, the next one uh, is R.H. Blythe's translation. And that one goes, the old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. Which, which is really interesting too because that plop adds a really striking element to that last line. Whereas... In the original Japanese, it's not onomatopoeia, so it's an actual phrase that means water sound or the sound of water. It's a, more of a descriptor rather than an actual sound that's being represented by the language. So that's an interesting choice. A lot of the translators chose to use the onomatopoeia um, and, and go with plop, or some of them said splash, or you know there was some like plip, plop, or things like that. Uh, people got pretty creative with it. Another translation is by Hiroshi Takamite, and this one is, Oh, into the old pond, a frog plunged with a splash, and once again, calm prevails. This one stood out to me because it adds um, an aside at the end in parentheses that says, and once again, calm prevails. So this kind of shows the frog jumping in, splashing, and then returning to stillness which is kind of inferred in the original language, the an old pond, a frog jumps in, the sound of water. But in that version, it kind of leaves the settling down to the imagination. And this translator chose to bring that to the forefront by saying, and once again, calm prevails. Um, another version by Nobuyuki Yuasa goes, breaking the silence of an ancient pond, a frog jumped into the water. A deep resonance. 
That one, yeah. Breaking the silence of an ancient pond, a frog jumped into the water, a deep resonance. So this one starts with the image of breaking the silence and is focusing on that, that breaking, that um, more forceful, uh, forceful aspect of the jump. And then lingers on that last image of a deep resonance, like the sound, like the resonant sound of the frog jumping in the water. William Howard Cohen did one that goes mossy pond, frog leaping in, splash. And this one's interesting because it also reminds me that some of the translators chose to represent it in past tense. So the frog leaped or the frog jumped into the water. Um, and some of them have a more active version that's present tense, um, like this one. So mossy pond, frog leaping in, splash. That's, that's more immediate. It's more action-filled. Dorothy Britton's version goes, listen, a frog jumping into the stillness of an ancient pond. So she starts with the listen, sort of this imperative, this listen, a frog jumping into the stillness of an ancient pond, and that's how she represents the sound. Somebody else chose to interpret it as a limerick, which is a completely different poetic form. So a limerick has five lines, typically in anapestic trimeter, so that's based, based on like how many syllables it has and what the rhythm is. And typically the rhyme scheme is A-A-B-B-A, -B -B -A, which means that the first, second, and fifth lines rhyme, and then the third and the fourth lines rhyme. And in a limerick, the third and the fourth line are a little shorter. So the way that this translator, and the translator's name wasn't listed, uh, at least I didn't see it, but it goes, there once was a curious frog who sat by a pond on a log, and to see what resulted in the pond catapulted with the water noise heard round the log. So that one is a pretty obvious difference to the haiku because it completely switches the form, but it's interesting to see the concepts elaborated on. And limericks have a very playful, at least the few that I've heard, have a very playful sort of spirit to them, something about that meter, something about, it. you know, it could even be just the associations of the particular limericks that I've heard, like as a kid, they were kind of more jokey. Um, someone else translated it as a sonnet. I'm not going to read that whole one, but that was really fascinating because it had a ton of lines. Here was a really unorthodox translation. So this one was by Bernard Lionel Einban, and it said, Antic pond, frantic frog jumps in, gigantic sound. So there's a lot of frenetic energy in that. Just, it feels very chaotic. Ross Figgins did a version that said, Old pond, frog jumps in, a sound question. I love that one. Gotta love that pun in the last line. Old pond, frog jumps in, a sound question. Which, that's a fascinating way of interpreting that original poem of this frog jumping into the pond being a question. William Flagair did one that goes, Stillness, a frog pond ploomp makes it breathe. He also did a couple more in the book. The next two are also by him. So he did another one that goes, the universe, a froglet moves it, listen. And then the last one that stood out to me of his, and he had a few more in the book, but I just picked my, the ones that stood out to me. The last one is the wordless word, a frog pond plop makes it heard. And that's fascinating because he could be referring to sort of like the spiritual dimension of sound in some you know, Eastern thought systems, Eastern religions, specifically in like the Upanishads, there's, you know, the idea of the sacred syllable Om and 
what comes along with that and the, the universe being sort of a vibration or the universe being created by sound. So it's interesting to think of the poem from that sense. Um, and I think this translator was really tapping into that or looking at it from that perspective of the universe. A froglet moves it. Listen. And the wordless word, a frog pond plop, makes it heard. Yeah. And the last one I wrote down that stood out to me is by Hisayo Kanaseki. An old pond. Notes of frogs leaping in. So yeah, there it is. 100 frogs. There are a lot of ways to look at a single sentence or a single idea or a single poem. And... Yeah, it's fascinating to slow down enough and go deep enough to really look at all the ways that changing one word, changing the order of something, those things can completely create a whole new world inside a poem or inside a sentence or inside a story. And it's really cool to see.